Hi, welcome to the Recalculating Life podcast, helping you navigate the detours of life. I'm your host, Vijay Arora. I interview professionals of various careers to provide insight into their work experiences, education, lifestyle, and more, as well as discussing important topics in life. Discover your interests and aspirations with your host, Vijay Arora. Thank you so much for speaking to me. Sure. So um, very briefly, uh, I know you were also interested in talking a little bit about uh, uh, college applications. Mm -hmm. You know, there's not a whole lot I can say for two reasons. One, I know one place very well, that's Brown. Mm -hmm. I don't know what Stanford is like these days. Uh, So I can't probably help in comparing places really very well, Mm -hmm. uh, except for a very broad brushstroke um, impressions. But I can certainly tell you more about uh, Brown. That's probably the most useful one. Mm -hmm. uh, So you get an impression what it's like, at least from my (laughs) professorial perspective. uh, And obviously students might experience it differently, but I have enough contact with students that I have a good sense how at least many of them experience it. Yeah, I'd love to talk about Brown a little. I'm mainly interested in sort of your field of study and your fields of interest because I've been reading like once my mom told me about you like reading your profile on Brown and your fields of interest and a lot of it it's slightly different than what I'm interested in like the perspective I take it from but it kind of overlaps because I'm interested in economics and politics, but I've recently been getting into philosophy and trying to learn more about that. And it seems like you're very educated on that subject. Yeah, I mean, I've never quite been able to (laughs) limit myself to only one field. So I, yeah, I studied philosophy, psychology, linguistics, and then back to psychology, cognitive science, decision science. So it's always been uh, overlap. And then the recent stuff with computer science and human robot interaction was another layer but there is actually a new uh, concentration we have at brown concentration is basically major we just call it concentration and that's called behavioral decision sciences and it's an interdisciplinary uh, integration let me just close this here um, between our department which is itself already uh, you know multiple disciplines cognitive science psychology and linguistics and it uh, takes our department, it has uh, the economics department and uh, a couple of more applied places, uh, like I think public health is part of it. And it really tries to, uh, political science as well, it tries to find the common ground uh, of the human psychological process of decision-making, the context in which it happens and the consequences uh, that successful or less successful decision-making has on the world around us. So that, when, when I heard a little bit about your interests, uh, that definitely struck me as a, a very suitable one that exists in other places, like Carnegie Mellon has a good behavioral decision sciences concentration or major. Um, I think UPenn has one. So there are places, oh yeah, and Northwestern, uh, there are places that do that, but it's not guaranteed uh, at you know, many places. I don't think Stanford has it. I don't think Harvard has it. So that's, that's one thing that uh, does integrate some of the interests that you have. 
philosophy is not strongly represented, but to be honest, philosophy is often something that you just have to pick up yourself, uh, taking courses, whatever interests you. Philosophy departments, I don't know whether it's their fault or other departments' faults, they're often not as well-connected with other departments. Uh, I've had some connections here with colleagues, but that usually stayed very loose and didn't kind of tighten. Uh, at Stanford too, I thought, hey, there should be more connection, but I took courses and, and seminars and that was great, but I never felt there was a huge amount of mutual interest between the psychology and the philosophy department. So, you know, but that shouldn't uh, discourage you. Philosophy is something that you can really pretty much do by taking courses, reading, exposing yourself and uh, integrating that into your own thinking. Uh, often philosophers publish on their own and their graduate students publish on their own. So it's also not as collaborative a field as psychology. I mean, psychology solo author papers are at least less, much less frequent, though they do occur at times. Mm -hmm. So I think there's a, there's a way in which philosophy can always be added to whatever you do, but economic psychology, if they work together on a major, that's kind of a nice opportunity. Yeah, because I find it really interesting how all of these things, they're all related and they're all in our daily lives. And that's why I got so interested in it. I started to notice how all of these things affect my life and then how they're connected, which is why I'm interested in all of them. And you seem to be interested in a lot of different things, like you said, and in your research statement, you said like you're a social cognitive scientist. So <laughs> what exactly would you say you do as a professor at Brown, but also like what you research? So the, the term social cognitive science tries to integrate the label cognitive science, which is already an interdisciplinary field. Mm. Really, it uh, was born in the 1950s, 40s, 50s, 60s, as a confluence of the rising interest in machines, artificial intelligence, robotics on the one side, and the rising interest in brain science and in psychological sciences. And then at the time, at least, philosophy was a, a binding element because they were all interested in the mind, in cognition, in the very broadest sense. There were even anthropologists and linguists part of this broader movement. And then for some reason, this interdisciplinary broad movement sort of split into all its own disciplines. Computer science had a huge rise and then they became their own thing. Anthropology, it seemed almost like pulled back from this uh, endeavor. Psychology also had its own rise. And only in the last few years have I seen this kind of being come together again a little bit. And then the idea that social science and social cognition, which is a subfield of social psychology, that they can also be interdisciplinary. That led me to call that social cognitive science. And there are a few other people who've used this term, but it's not really a very common term, but it tries to signal this multiple identity approach. Uh, it's both social, thus integrating communities, humans as part of these communities. It integrates cognition as really the stuff that's in our minds and obviously the idea of a scientific approach to all of that rather than 
just musing like philosophy often does uh, about the problems and about the fascinating uh, questions, which I think is important to pose philosophical problems often is a very inspiring step, but to me, it is not the final step in an investigation. Uh, the, the steps that I really have come to love are the ones where you engage with reality, with data, with systematic experiments, observations, uh, historical analyses, sociological analyses, trying to use as many methods as possible to better understand the phenomenon from multiple angles. And to me, that is the heart of an interdisciplinary uh, approach. So how does that um, play into, you're a psychology professor, correct? Yeah, although, because our department is called Cognitive Linguistic and Psychological Sciences, you can also call me a professor of cognitive linguistic and psychological sciences. But by training, my PhD is in psychology. And so probably the, the most accurate term would be professor of psychology. But do you um, weave in those, those aspects you just discussed into your classes with psychology? Yeah, absolutely. I, I really try to take this approach. So for example, right now, this term, I'm teaching a class called Blame and Punishment. And we've been reading things from legal philosophy, sociology, anthropology, evolution, uh, social, cognitive, uh, and, and neurosciences. Uh, so really all angles, behavioral economics, certainly, mm -hmm. all angles that have something to say about how humans regulate each other, moral behavior, social behavior, social norms, uh, all the way back into human history of hunter-gatherers, you know, 500,000 years ago, through the time when humans settled and how things have changed in the last few centuries and what we have right now, uh, connecting, of course, to issues of policing and, and criminal justice system and uh, the current, you know, divisiveness of moral and ideological uh, uh, systems and groups in the United States and in the world. So it's, it's, a, it's a wonderful class to really expose students to many different literatures and have discussions that integrate these perspectives. And uh, students also come from behavioral economics and philosophy and sociology and neuroscience and different fields, though all interested in some way in the human, in a social context. And that's to me sort of always the heart of what I'm trying to teach my students and, and research to understand how the human as a person, as a mind is intimately tied to its surroundings, the immediate group members, the relationships they have, but also society and, and identity and history uh, that we are a part of. And that you know, starts with psychology, but it really goes also then into the broader social sciences uh, inevitably and, and in a good way, I think. Yeah, that's one of the things, like the reason I got into economics and politics was to sort of understand how society works, I guess, and why we have the problems we have. But then as I delve deeper into that, philosophy and psychology and those types of things were, like you said, inevitable to like start thinking about, which is why I got into philosophy, because to, in order to understand it deeper and understand the true why to like why people act the way they do, you have to understand their moral like perspective on what they're doing. 
Right. And once you ask about <clears throat> the moral background, then you always ask, well, how did they grow up? Where did they grow up? Uh, what were their experiences? What are they exposed to now? What are they afraid of? What they are striving for? That, you know, what, what, what makes morality so important is that it is, in a sense, the system that allows the individual to coexist in principle peacefully with the group morality wouldn't be necessary if we all lived as individuals. Morality becomes an important element once you live in groups where the interest of the group isn't always the same as the interest of the individual. Uh, and you can see this you know, in, in hunter-gatherer societies where like groups of 30 or so people uh, without a place really of uh, settled residence just moved in a nomadic way. And they had sporadic success in hunting and gathering and they were fiercely egalitarian. There was no way of having a meritocracy or somebody in a higher position because you never knew who would be successful hunting or gathering and they always shared. And in fact, if you study the few hunter-gatherer societies that are still left on this planet, you find them to be sometimes even mocking somebody who had a successful hunt so that that person wouldn't feel too good about themselves and feel better than others. That's so different from our perspective nowadays. And in a sense, uh, one student in a discussion last week said, you know, a meritocracy is always a form of hierarchy, creation and hierarchy, hierarchy maintenance. There's a very difficult uh, sort of balance between granting merit maybe where we think it is deserved without assigning demerit to others who may not have made that contribution or had that kind of luck, but it's almost inevitable in, in, in societies nowadays. And that's what we've tried to trace. As soon as you have settled fast growing societies of strangers, you cannot have egalitarianism. Mm -hmm. We can have very small groups in which that is closer to the ideal, but there's almost no way, at least for the human mind, the way it functions and the way uh, we have evolved to this point of evolution. Hierarchies are part of what we do, but in principle, we are capable of egalitarianism. We see this, you know, like 12,000 years ago, it wasn't like our brain was different. It's the same brain. And we were perfectly capable of doing that. And nowadays humans in the few societies that are left are perfectly capable of doing it, but we're also perfectly good in hierarchies and preferably on top. But interestingly, we are also accepting of hierarchies on the bottom, uh, not necessarily by choice, but there are ways in which we sort of fit in and arrange, which makes the ones on top, of course, all the more successful. But sort of this weird symbiosis um, that we have evolved to be capable of. Mm -hmm. And that maintains hierarchies because um, it gives legitimacy to the ones on top. They provide, of course, legitimacy for themselves. Um, and as you see in the US, those who are not on top believe they can get there. And that striving makes you accept hierarchy as something real and as something uh, acceptable because you want to now move up and it means you say, this reality is something I embrace and I want to make use of, which, you know, maybe that's the only way of, of uh, tackling it, but it definitely helps keep the system 
in place. Yeah, that's something I've kind of been pondering recently that the concept of an egalitarian society versus a um, meritocracy. And I'm taking AP psychology right now. And as I'm studying these, uh, the different economic systems, communism, capitalism, communism is obviously egalitarian, capitalism is inherently hierarchical. And I'm the big question of psychology is like nature versus nurture. So do you think that this greed or this hierarchy is of human nurture or human nature? Because you kind of said like it has developed. So that sounds like it's nurture, but it's so ingrained in our psyche or mindset. Do you think it's become human nature or is it possible for that to go away? I think it is human nature, but so is egalitarianism. The way I'm thinking of this is we obviously have, you know, six million years ago been primates. That's where we came from. And uh, Homo sapiens is quite different. It has substantially evolved to a much better learner, quick learner, uh, a much more socially um, dependent, but also socially contributing species. And for a very long time, much longer than we have lived in hierarchies recently, for a much longer time did we live in egalitarian, small communities. But that primate background is still there. And primates have lived, uh, and the ones that we see nowadays, typically live in hierarchies. And it's dominance hierarchies in which often dominance is expressed quite physically through fights and and access to mates. Now, even our dominance hierarchies nowadays are a little more socially sophisticated than that. But we have both of those things inside of us. We are absolutely by nature capable of being both, which means that nurture becomes the force that pushes us in one or the other direction. So when you have something as unformed as the human mind, which is really one of our strengths, we have a huge brain, we are born with it, but it is very unshaped. And so the social and um, physical surroundings shape our brain to be a certain way, which means you put a baby into human uh, society in the last 12,000 years, it will grow up to be a more and more hierarchical human being. You put a human baby into a, into a hunter-gatherer society, either the few that exist right now, or you know, 15,000, 20,000 years ago before humans settled, it'll grow up as an egalitarian human. So to me, this nature nurture is a misunderstanding because uh, what nature provides are potentials. I mean, the way our genetic system works is here is a, a range of potentials. And now the, the world in which the organism grows up shapes what direction it goes, what is prioritized. And so, yeah, we're absolutely capable. But once you've grown up for, you know, 16, 18 years in a particular kind of society, it's definitely difficult to overcome that full-blown learning experience. But you still have that capacity inside of you. And if you desire it, you can make society egalitarian, but you can surround yourself with people who share that ideal and you can form communities in which those ideals are more closely approximated. Uh, I think right now, at least, we, we have no chance of changing society as a whole structure because it has, in a sense, grown to be interlocking, right? 
I mean, the, the, the way the people on top maintain their position is by way of all these systems of law and policing and, and elections and, and term limits or no term limits, all those pieces in a sense maintain some of that hierarchy. And it's not all bad. I mean, I think without hierarchies, we could have never grown so fast in terms of culture, technology and so on, because you get rewarded that means creativity and other innovations are going to be accelerated and each builds on the, on the previous one. So architecture and art as well, it's probably sometimes pretty brutal. I mean, the Egyptian pyramids are an amazing achievement architecturally and artistically, but they were made with slaves. Mm -hmm. So this not, doesn't make them inherently bad or slavery inherently acceptable, neither of them would be true. It's the combination of these human capabilities and forces that have created what we have. And it's certainly mixed. It's, it's a lot of good and it's a lot of not so good. So I think that that's the fascinating way that humans are so broadly capable of so many good and so many bad things. This is kind of a broad question or more of a statement. You could take it whichever direction you'd like, but you mentioned some different like social issues. How do you approach those issues or what are your thoughts on those social or political issues from what, everything you know with like, what you do moral psychology, social cognition, how do you approach those and what are your opinions on those issues? Well, I try to keep a reasonable separation between what I personally believe how I live my life, uh, what ideological commitments I have, and on the one side, and on the other side, what I do as a researcher and teacher. Now, I always tell my students right away, this is impossible to keep completely separate. Mm -hmm. But I do try to maintain an approach of saying, as a scientist, I'm not automatically taking for granted whatever I prefer to believe, whatever my ideological or social background makes me desire to believe. I do want evidence. I do want facts and reality. And I also do think that facts and reality of our society uh, support my ideological and my social preferences. I, I wasn't always the way I am now. I grew up in, in a country and in a family that was more conservative, certainly than I live my life now. And I grew up having a fairly religious Catholic surrounding. It's not that my parents necessarily had that. My father was actually declared, um, uh, I don't know whether he was an atheist, but he was definitely not part of any church. But I discovered that both religion and society and ideology and political beliefs are having an impact on reality and reality shapes them. And the more I understood about the human mind and about social reality, the more I couldn't accept certain principles and certain values and certain um, habits of thinking anymore. So I believe that my scientific knowledge informs 
the way I think about social phenomena and social issues and, and political and ideological ones. But I also don't want to be completely dismissive of other moral systems. I, I sometimes try to take a naturalistic approach and say, look, there are people and um, societies that share some norms and values with me and certainly share a lot of human traits with me, but I wouldn't want to live in that kind of society, in that kind of community. And I would not want them to impose their will on me. So I, in some sense, think it's possible to coexist with very different norm systems. But right now what the United States faces is that a huge, very, very um, distributed society somehow is forced to settle on one particular path. And that's not gonna work very well because if you are almost 50-50 and those two positions are pressed apart rather than together, one half will almost always be unhappy and will fight. And in some sense, that means we've just grown too, too large as just not a good way of integrating those. Coexistence is possible, but that means things like states' rights uh, would be taken more seriously. And uh, the nation as a whole is only a loose connection then you have more variety of norm systems and then you can choose to move to one state or another depending on your political and social preferences. Uh, but that mobility is an economic question. Some people can have that luxury, others may not. So I think that um, it's inevitable if you study these phenomena to be a scientist with certain beliefs and convictions but I'm still trying to maintain that identity of a scientist and I want facts and I want reality to be the arbiter of certain uh, predictions, beliefs, decisions, but norm systems are preferences about how we should deal with each other. And norm systems, for example, accept more or less hierarchy. Even though probably we can't have no hierarchy, there's still differences between those who fully embrace and legitimize any kind of hierarchy with the greatest distance between the top and the bottom and others that really try to reduce them and try to give more opportunities and more resources. So I think even within the society in which we live, there is still a lot of room for compromise and coexistence uh, as long as we sort of accept facts. This is the problem right now in the US when some groups don't even accept any facts anymore. Facts that the rest of the world has accepted that virtually every scientist would accept that most like children or young adults would accept before they are indoctrinated. And lies can lead people to accept things that are demonstrably false. That is really difficult because there's nothing you can say to them. There's no evidence that I could provide to convince them. That worries me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, I see a lot of like kind of indoctrination, like you mentioned, of like growing up in certain households. Some people just get entrenched in those ideals and develop some sort of cognitive dissonance to any information that doesn't disagree with them. And they just have a confirmation bias to agree with anything that does. Yeah. And 
I'm sure you know a lot about that like, cognitive science, but um, what do you predict for like the future? Because we're obviously in sort of social t- turmoil and divide in our country. So what do you think will happen? That's a, that's a very difficult question. I, I still believe that there's a general tendency towards what would now be called a more progressive society. Mm-hmm. I believe that first of all, because historically over the centuries really, not decades, but centuries, we do see increase in, in humanitarian values, increase in uh, social support and networks that provide those who are not as uh, fortunate to still have a, a worthy life. We see less violence, we see uh, more chances, we see, uh, for the most part, more democracy and more involvement. So I think that that will continue, but I also believe that it's more in this oscillating way. So if you, if you look at the civil rights movement, in response to the civil rights successes and achievements, there was a significant backlash mm-hmm. and that led to violence that led to um, the interpretation of rising crime rates as being the fault of certain groups in society and they were typically the ones who had just achieved civil rights so the ones in the dominant position then blamed it on them and tightened the screws of the criminal justice system and the and the punishment system and there's no other country that has higher incarceration rates than the US and incarceration rates that are vastly disproportionately incarcerating uh, members of minorities. And that's in part a response to a huge achievement in this country that people move from slave status to in some sense, at least in principle, equal status is an amazing achievement. But you see these movements back and then you see forward movements and then you see movements back. That Obama was elected and had two terms led to a backlash against uh, the, the progressive ideals that he put forth. Even though he wasn't an extreme progressive, but that definitely led to the possibility of electing somebody like Trump. So my future prediction isn't like, this is one point where we'll end up, but I do think that the that the trend, the direction is going in a more progressive way. Uh, homosexuality was illegal, uh, um, a clinically diagnosed illness. It's not anymore. Transgender was an aberration for some people. Now people don't talk as much about it. It doesn't mean that transgender individuals don't have a lot of traumatic experiences and a, a very difficult uh, path in life. But boy, it's very different now than it was even just 10 years ago. And so I think there are many directions of this kind of progress of a somewhat more tolerant, diverse, mutually accepting and mutually supportive society, but it's gonna take much longer than some of our ideals uh, would like it to be. Things are not gonna be suddenly like, you know, within 10, 15 years because of the, a demographic shift, Republicans basically will have no chance anymore in this country. I don't think so. Really? That's not going to happen. 
they will fight, the left and the right will fight for decades to come. It will go back and forth, but there will probably be a slight adjustment that, for example, Republicans have nominated women and minorities to run for House seats would not have been possible 10 years ago. They do this now, maybe they are more open and diversity uh, uh, embracing than they were 10 years ago, or maybe they just do it out of pragmatic considerations. But that's okay, because that means the culture will have more women and more minorities in the political system. It's better to have them even if they're Republicans, because they will still have moved society a little further towards that direction that previously the Democrats, the left has proposed and the right has resisted. Now the change is being embraced. So in a sense, the right moves towards what previously the left had called center and that will keep going. You see it in the Supreme Court as well. Typically those appointed you know, a couple decades ago by Republicans and considered to be on the right Mm-hmm. Many of them have moved to the center, some even tilting over to the left. And that has happened several times. And I think this can happen over the next 10, 20 years as well. But yes, you also see a pullback. And definitely that oscillation will keep going. Um, that is all provided that we won't have even further acceleration of uh, climate crises and viral crises, you know, will overcome COVID-19 probably within six to nine months, or at least large portions of the population will, but that might be another virus. And mm-hmm. then it will take another two years before that vaccine will develop. And there might be another 500,000 million people dying. So that those kinds of challenges are difficult to predict when they will happen, how broad ranging, their consequences will be. But in a very broad sense, I think society has progressed. Uh, Every century that you will look at has somewhat more democracy, has somewhat more human tolerance and has somewhat more, uh, not really equality and egalitarianism, but it's more in that direction. That's sign of hope from my perspective, but it's also how, whether or not that's my preference, that seems to be the historical trend. I guess that's, you know, a sign of success that society is thriving while taking that direction. It's not breaking down, it's not collapsing. I guess that means it can at least for a while longer take that direction of change. I do agree that like society has become more progressive on both sides and they've kind of built off of each other. But I also do feel the sort of polarization in the political atmosphere is causing a lot of problems and the hyper-partisanship where Republicans support this so Democrats are gonna be the opposite or, and the two-party system kind of created that situation, which is, I don't like the two-party system. And because it, creates these two groups that are fighting against each other when ultimately they have the same goal end goal of bettering the country. They may disagree on how to do it, but then it creates this polarization within the political atmosphere. And like you said, climate change, like Democrats believe in climate change, which 
but then like reactionary Republicans will just say it doesn't exist. And that's also because of the stronghold that like oil companies and them have in the political um, world with like rent seeking and their influence on politicians and stuff like that. That that's just a big problem that I notice. And when I do my research, this is a big problem that I see. And like you said, with those disease and everything, I was doing research on climate change and like in I think Alaska a couple years ago, um, when the when the ice thaws during the summer, usually it's just a superficial layer, but as climate changes, it goes deeper and deeper and there are hidden viruses, like ancient viruses that we've never been exposed to that are coming out. And there was a slight outbreak a couple years ago in Alaska, it was contained, but as climate change progresses, that may happen more and more. And like the hyper-consumerism in our society which is somewhat due to capitalism, but also just as there's a growing population, it's like we're creating our own. Doom is a bit dark. That's the only word I can think of. Yeah, I, I mean, society and, and humanity will survive as long as the planet survives. Humans have been incredibly adaptive. I mean, geez, we, we, we survived many, many, many ice ages, uh, even though our bodies are not exactly ideally suited, we figured out ways and, and we migrated and moved and, and uh, learned to adapt and found ways of settling and protecting and technology. So I'm not too worried about humanity as a whole, but we can certainly not sustain 8 million, eight, sorry, 8 billion people on this planet. It's not gonna survive further climate crises. So there will be huge sacrifices and that's going to probably lead to further strife because it will hit those first who have fewer resources, less money, less protection. And um, if there is this inequality, just like we see also now whom it affects uh, to get the virus, uh, that will in the long run lead either to civil war or a lot of revolutionary sort of top-down forces, greater oppression in order to maintain the privileges for those on the top. So that can be many of those forces. That's why I said in my prediction, I can't take that into account because this could come in 50 years, in 100 years, it could come in 500 years. We don't know. The fluctuations of climate, even without us, have always existed. It's just when you look at the last uh, 9,000 years, we have stayed on an upward trajectory and that's never happened. So that's the problem that we've just maybe unluckily gone on that upward trajectory and then we totally rode this for the longest time. It started with basically, think about it this way. When humans settled, what did they do? They cut down trees more and more and more. The populations grew, they expanded, they had agriculture, they had all kinds of things, which was already the first step of changing climate. Mm -hmm. And that was, you know, 10,000 years ago. That's when you exactly see the warming never stopped since humans settled. So in some sense, our influence on climate wasn't the last hundred years of, you know, killing, uh, the environment without CO2, it was the last 9,000 years. It's much more quickly nowadays and, and it seems to accelerate further.
So I think that, but there's one thing when you said that the left and the right have both the same goal of making society better. I think the one difference still is that on the left, there is a greater commitment to make society better for everybody. Yeah, definitely. And on the right, it's more like we want to make society better for whoever does better. <laughs> it's like everybody has the chance, but some succeed. And mm -hmm. that's different because if you believe that there's really equal starting point, then you are not living in the reality that we live in. Because that is a wrong, an inaccurate belief that can be demonstrated to be wrong. But if you believe that, then you can argue, oh, we have the same goals, but that's not quite the same. But, you know, Europe has had multi-party systems in many countries. Maybe it's a little better, but I think right now the problem is once you have a two-party system and you introduce a third party, that third party will eat away at one of the two parties' votes. So you hand the other side the elections. That's There's right. no way to avoid that. Whatever third party there is, there isn't a third dimension. It just doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. The libertarians will probably eat away from the uh, Republicans and the, uh, a Green Party would eat away from the Democrats. And that's, I think, why the, both the parties resist yeah. anything but the two-party system. It's probably too late to, to change that. Whereas in Europe, the parties grew in, in different ways. And there's always been this idea of coalitions in at least some of the countries. That's the bigger problem in the US, that they're not forming coalitions. They're basically set up to be multi-party fights, House and Senate and uh, the executive and uh, the, the uh, Supreme Court and the, the judiciary as a whole. And that's not a coalition. If they all fight with each other and, and obstruct each other, that's the difference. I think the two-party system by itself doesn't necess necessitate this structure, uh, but it's the unwillingness to somehow find compromises. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's gonna get better in a few decades, it's possible. But right now you're absolutely right. It's, it's about as polarized as it's been in a long time. Um, something like I've been, I propose, or not just me, but something I would support. Have you heard of ranked choice voting? Oh yeah, absolutely. I feel like if you incorporate that, it could gradually introduce new or other parties and take down the two-party system because right now people are too afraid to vote third party, especially in last election where it was so crucial that each candidate got every vote depending on who you wanted to win. But by including this ranked choice voting, you can vote for that third party and show that you support this specific thing over just the two party system. But then if they don't get the majority or most of the votes, which is basically inevitable, your vote will go back to the main party. So I feel like gradually that could introduce other parties. It could, but you don't even need to introduce other parties. You could just have four candidates. You don't need to do a primary for the Democrats and a primary for the Republicans, but you just have 
the, the le more lefty, the more centrist Democrats and the more centrist Republican and the more right-wing Republican. You can allow those, don't need to have new parties. They can actually already represent a spectrum of political convictions. And then you could have ranked choice of voting and then you have similar effects. So I think it might actually be easier to go that route. Uh, and there are a couple states that do that. Is it Maine? Maine yeah. Yeah. So yeah, that's a possibility. Well, and of course, the other thing is like, there's no country in the world that has a crazy system like the US electoral system. Mm -hmm. And that's just really totally outdated for a country of this size. But that's not going to change. I yeah, that's why I think I don't think the electoral college is a good thing or it the original purpose has it has no purpose now. And exactly. it really disproportion disproportionately represents America because mm -hmm. like pretty sure the stat was like in Wyoming, your vote counts three times as much as someone in California based on the proportions of population to your electoral votes. And that just doesn't sound right. Yeah. Yeah. The yeah, and it's not gonna change because our system is set up that you need 60 votes to change that and no party will dominate house and senate with you know 60 percent uh so that's that's just going to be it and yeah, republicans need the electoral college to really win anything right now exactly now that could you know over time change through the demographic shifts uh or as i said earlier the shift can be indirect by forcing Republicans to adopt certain beliefs and convictions and policies that previously they strenuously refused to adopt. You know, parties can change, but if you look at just the 20th century and 21st century, the positions have been pretty entrenched. So um, it's society as a whole that changed, not necessarily the ideological position of the parties. But then, you know, at a time when there was a side that insisted on racial segregation and another side that uh, insisted on racial integration, the latter won. And then for the most part, nobody talks about racial segregation anymore. That's just, that's done. Uh, and maybe in 20 years, nobody will talk about uh, not supporting people who are below the poverty line uh, not extending unemployment mm -hmm. in, in many European countries. That's just not even a discussion anymore. Yeah. So I think that there are chances of improving society, even without trying to completely undo the system. Um, but right now, yeah, it, it, there's definitely a discrepancy between popular preferences and um, the results of elections. And the other thing, of course, is with voter suppression and other known tendencies that doesn't even fully represent the population of the United States. Mm -hmm. That you have to register to vote and, and all of these things, it's crazy. It should be every person's right to vote. I don't have to be affirmed the right or getting affirmation the right and have to jump through hoops and be questioned. That seems pretty odd. Well. It clearly serves some more than others. Yeah, I agree completely because people use their position, the position they gain in power to solidify that position and make sure that no one else can.
take them down from there. And yep. I have to go to practice, but I really enjoyed this conversation. And it's one yeah. of the really interesting conversation, one of the most I've had in a long time. And sure. I had a lot of other questions. Um, if you'd be interested in talking again, I'd love to talk more about that stuff. But um, thank you so much for talking to me today. Sure. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So we can probably set up a, another Zoom meeting then. Okay, great. Okay, enjoy practice, Vijay. Nice to meet you in person. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed and learned a lot. Stay tuned for our next episode.